A world of secrecy surrounds political donations. Any attempts to create more transparency in government are thwarted by the same political parties that benefit from this secrecy. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this was the start of some kind of spy thriller, but it's actually the current situation in Australian federal politics. With the recent release of data from the Australian Electoral Commission, we can see that political parties in Australia collectively received $168 million in income for the last financial year. Yet more than half of the funding for the major parties remains secret. Here to talk about this concerning issue are two of our institutional reform experts, Kate Griffiths and Tom Crowley. So Tom, we'll start with you. Can you break down that $168 million for us? Who got what? I sure can. I I think the first important thing to understand about that $168 million, and I think it's going to be a theme that we'll return to several times over the course of this discussion, is that we can't see most of it. Um, So you you alluded to that in in your opening spiel there. Um, It's only a very, very small fraction of that $168 million that is declared. Um, So, for example, the sort of total amount declared for each of the major parties is somewhere in the vicinity of kind of six or seven million dollars. And so that's only kind of tends to be kind of large donations that are declared. And there are a number of kind of transparency issues, which we'll return to later. Uh, Of what we can see, the, the major parties received more in donations than the other parties combined. But the largest individual donor was to a minor party. It was Clive Palmer giving almost $6 billion to his own party. So that individual donation uh, was a very large one. But then beyond that, of, of the declared funds that we know about, the coalition received 41%, Labor received 33%. Uh, but the Greens came a distant third at 11% and, and Clive Palmer's donation was sort of fourth place in the overall rankings. Again, the pool of what we can see tends to be donated by, uh, sorry, it tends to be dominated rather by a lot of the largest donations. So the largest 5% of donors accounted for about half the donations. So there's really kind of a few big chunks of donations that account for a very, very large portion of what we can see. I've mentioned that Clive Palmer won a few times. The second biggest one was Richard Pratt's Pratt Holdings, which donated about $1.5 million to the Liberal Party. So that, you know, again, is sort of a really huge donation coming from one individual that accounts for a very large part of the pool that we can see. And there are another um, couple of kind of, uh, there are some sort of, there was a Liberal Party uh, linked foundation called the Greenfields Foundation. That was the next one on the list. It donated about half a million. And there are a couple of other large wealthy individuals who had the kind of largest donations which which dominate the pool. Uh, and in general, I think it's fair to say that uh, particularly on the coalition side of things, that those, those large individual donors are the kind of the, the big fish, if you like. Uh, and on the Labor side, it's a slightly different story. Um, they, of course, have a lot of unions that will donate a significant amount of money, and a lot of their largest donors are unions. So the Shoppies Union, the SDA, uh, was the leader of the pack there for, for Labor. They donated almost half a million, and Labor also made a lot of money from its kind of internal uh, investment vehicles that it owns and, and things like that. So, so it tends to be a story, from what we can see, of a few large players dominating the pool. A few other kind of notable names. I, I think the other thing that's maybe notable in this space is the kind of what we might call the bipartisan givers, who in a spirit of bipartisanship give large and healthy donations to both sides of politics, even in a year like this where there is no election. So, for example, the Macquarie Group, uh, ANZ, the Australian Hotels Association, and Woodside Energy, they're all giving kind of six-figure sums to both major parties. 
We might ask, you know, why would you do that when it's not an election year? What, what are you getting in exchange for that fairly hefty price tag? Um, it may simply be that they're just sort of very interested in a healthy political system or perhaps, you know, it's something maybe slightly more nefarious, if we like, and, and to do with kind of influence and, and kind of wielding influence. Um, and certainly a report that um, Kate and, and that Danielle Wood wrote uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the report who's in the room, kind of considered this question and, and um, there's certainly a lot of evidence that, that companies that, that do donate to both sides of politics are sort of playing the long game, if you like, uh, and that there is a link between sort of donating to major political parties and opening doors and, and wielding influence. Um, so it's always sort of notable to, to kind of see uh, which companies are, are playing that sort of game. And certainly some of those ones that I mentioned, so ANZ and a couple of others, are kind of uh, repeat donors, if you like, and, and often um, uh, names that pop up in in these sorts of figures. So I'm just going to interrupt you there, Tom, because I know we're going to get to kind of what these donations buy in a little bit. And you just read my mind because I was curious why a group would give to both major parties. I mean, it, it seems like a case of hedging your bets. But if there's no election, then why would you do that? I'm going to turn to you now, Kate. And, and one of the most concerning aspects of this donations data is not necessarily the publicly declared donations, but the high quantity of undeclared funds. Why the secrecy? Aren't political parties required to publicly declared donations? So you're right, Kate, there are rules around disclosures of donations. Uh, the trouble is that they're fairly weak at the federal level and there's quite some quite significant loopholes, which mean that there's actually a lot of money in the system that we, we really don't know anything about. So if we go back to that sort of $168 million in income that all parties sort of collectively received in the last financial year, we can look at that and see that about $59 million of it is public funding. So that's money coming from um, state and federal electoral commissions and that's supporting parties' kind of base operations there's then about $109 million in, in private funding beyond that. And if we, if we look at that private funding, roughly speaking, there's about a third of it that we kind of have a clear idea about and about two-thirds that we, that we really don't. But it does vary a lot by parties. So when we look at, at particular parties, if we take uh, the coalition, about 52% of their private income is undisclosed, which could be a whole mix of small donations for example, from mum and dad donors giving, you know, 100 bucks through to large donors who could be uh, splitting their donations below the disclosure threshold. And this is one of those loopholes I was, I was referring to. So unfortunately, the rules, as they're written, they're supposed to kind of put major donors on the public record. They've got a threshold for how big you have to be to count as, as a major donor. It's $14,300. So donating more than that, and you should be on the public record. But that's already a very high threshold, far more than the average Australian could afford to contribute to a political cause, of course. Or even if you do exceed that threshold, if you did it in multiple separate donations below the threshold, there are no guarantees you'll be on the public record because the party doesn't have to aggregate donations. It is up to the donor themselves to self-declare to the Australian Electoral Commission that they've made donations totaling above the threshold. And there's really no policing of that. So I think that's one of the significant loopholes out there. Another is just how high the threshold is in the first place and the fact that there's 
people giving $10,000 who don't have to be on the public record when $10,000 we know is enough to buy a seat to sit next to a minister at a fundraising dinner. And what an opportunity to have a chat and potentially influence them. So I think we want to know about donations of, of, of a significant size. And I think the current threshold doesn't reflect that. So, Kate, I'm just going to ask you, um, if I donate $14,299, say, 10 times to a political party in Australia, that doesn't have to get declared? The party doesn't have to declare it. So, Kat, you ought to tell the Australian Electoral Commission that you've done that, but how would they know? Um, and that's the, that's kind of the problem. And so this is where the, the design of the rules is, is not um, ideal and is certainly not up to the standards that we see elsewhere. Just going back to one thing, and this is a question for you, Kate, um, more out of curiosity than anything else, and it's okay if you don't know it, what is the punishment for an individual not actually declaring political donations? The AEC will write to you um, if they know that you haven't declared. So, for example, if a party's you know, missed the deadline or something, they'll write to the party to let them know. If it was the case of an individual donor, there's probably very little avenues that the AEC has to know whether you donated in the first place, so they wouldn't necessarily even be able to write to you. But, yes, we're talking about a severe letter and maybe a follow-up letter. (laughs) No wonder there might be a few too many secret donations if the worst they're going to get is a scathing letter from the AEC. There's stricter rules on this sort of thing. Um, for example, the New South Wales Electoral Commission has stricter rules on this sort of thing and there are uh, real sort of penalties associated with it and there is some policing of their disclosures regime. So um, it's not that it can't be done. It is just not being part of the system that's been set up at the federal level. Yeah, and I think the onus certainly needs to be on the political parties rather than the individual because it's much harder to police individuals considering you'd need access to their private bank accounts. It's also just not something you would want public policy to be trying to do to police individuals because I think what we're looking at um, here is about how parties themselves, political parties, are funded and providing some transparency to voters and to the public at large about who has the potential to influence their decisions, their policies, etc. So the obligation here, all the obligations here really should be on the political parties themselves to disclose that information. And we're not, we're not talking about, as Tom said, we're not talking about even restricting donations or who can donate. We're really just talking about some transparency around the major donors. Privacy for small donors, sure. Some transparency for the major donors. And I completely agree with you there, Kate. And I think, you know, politicians and and parties do have a higher sense of responsibility um, to the people that they serve. So I think it's appropriate that the onus falls on them. A third problem, I guess, with the way the rules are designed, which is there's this very large bucket of funds called other receipts that the parties do declare, but it's completely ambiguous sort of what the source of these receipts is. So it could be that income from a bank called another receipt. It could be investment income or it could also be that the bank attended a fundraising dinner and contributed to a political fundraiser. And both of those things look the same in the way the donations data is is published. So we do see this messy bucket of other receipts. And effectively together, if you take the two major parties and you combine their undisclosed, their their undeclared funds, because presumably they're below the the threshold and these other receipts together you get about 90% of their income 
So there's really only about 10% we're seeing on the public record for the two major parties. Now, you've just given me this mental picture of a large bucket of blank receipts somewhere in a political office, but it's really interesting that you say that there's all this stuff that is just unaccounted for. Now, I really want to turn to that question of, you know, what do these donations buy you? Donations are a form of kind of political expression. You can contribute to a political cause financially by supporting a party. Um, You can contribute to a political cause with your time or with your actions by, you know, protesting or by campaigning. There's there's many ways you can kind of pursue a political cause and donations is is one of those. What they buy, though, is, is that we see when you're a significant donor, we can see that political parties are actually quite reliant on you. As Tom said, about 5% of donors represent about 50% of all declared donations. That 5% can wield pretty substantial influence because the parties are actually really reliant on that income. And we know from looking at some of the data available at state government level, it's not available at the federal government level, but at state government level, we can see both who some of the major donors are and who has access to senior ministers when you put those two data sources together, you can see that uh, in Queensland, for example, about half of the major donors are getting a meeting with just one of the top three ministers, the Premier, Deputy Premier or Treasurer. Now, that's an incredible level of access that the typical Australian could never expect. So it does suggest that donations open doors and give an opportunity to influence. What sort of influence actually happens in terms of policy outcomes is very hard to pin down. So, Tom, last year, Senator Jackie Lambie put up a bill to improve the transparency of political donations. What happened there? So this is an interesting and I think very revealing case study. So the first thing, and I can't really emphasise this enough, this was not a very revolutionary proposal. It was not proposing to limit donations in any way or ban any sort of donors. It was really very tiptoe, tiptoe, very, very small Uh, proposal. It was really just about exactly these sorts of transparency and informational issues that Kate's been talking about and trying to remove some of those barriers. So the things that the the, um, bill proposed to do uh, was require instead of that 14,300 that we've been talking about to bring that down to 5,000 and require the parties to declare donations over $5,000. And then there was a proposal to stop donation splitting, um, exactly the kind of thing that you were suggesting before, Kat, where you might break up into sort of $14,299 increments to prevent that um, from allowing people to sort of hide their donations under the transparency threshold, if you like. Then there was also something about making income from those sort of political fundraising events declarable and shortening the time frame. So again, you know, it's worth noting we're talking here in January 2021 about the 2019-20 financial year, which ended you know, kind of seven or eight months ago, which is sort of a very long time. We've all sort of forgotten what was happening then. Obviously, a lot's happened in our lives in the intervening period. Um, This bill sort of proposed uh, moving that to sort of a a matter of weeks rather than months. So to, again, kind of make it just a little bit more timely and topical and and transparent. So I think I've done a reasonable job of selling this bill, uh, but it was was, uh, whitewashed completely um, so that the, the committee that considered it basically just completely rejected it out of hand. Of course, these sorts of committees tend to have, of course, a predominance of the two major parties together and it was rejected on the basis uh, and I quote that there is already an effective regime in place which is essentially uh, no thank you we're not interested in talking about this Uh, you know go away if you like Um, and I think that I mean I think it's fair to say that that's a a fairly uh, disappointing 
if not altogether surprising response. Um, but yeah, I think a, an interesting kind of case study in how difficult it can be to make any change on this when the the kind of the ones who I suppose perhaps benefit from the lack of transparency are the major parties which tend to hold the levers to do something about it. So I want to have a look at how Australia compares to the rest of the world in this transparency around political donations. What other countries are doing well? Actually, I think one of the most helpful comparison points for the Australian sort of for the federal donations regime is actually the state donations regime. So right here at home we have um, many states doing kind of much better on this than we see at the federal level. Most states, in fact, do better on this. Um, So New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria have all implemented stricter disclosure regimes around transparency. Uh, Many of them have also implemented donations caps, which reduces the amount that individuals can donate. In New South Wales, for example, those caps have been around for quite a long time uh, and more recently they've been introduced in Queensland and Victoria too. There's also um, some reforms, again, in New South, led by New South Wales around reducing the amount that political parties can spend during election campaigns. And this is kind of taking it quite a bit further and, and is a, quite a bit more effective, I think, in achieving what you'd want to achieve here, which is Basically, that the incentive to source more and more donations, to chase more and more funds, is about raising money for election campaigns. So political parties want to get their message out. More money helps them do that. You want them to be able to get their message out broadly. But the arms race for more and more donations between the major parties is where you can develop some really unhealthy relationships with major donors um, and it's where the influence can be wield, wielded. So if you actually restrict the amount that parties can spend during election campaigns, put a cap on the total amount that they can spend, it just takes away the incentive to seek more and more donations. So my last question for you, Kate, and it's a bit of a tricky one, how do we change the system if the major political parties won't? Look, we've seen some interest from the crossbench, from minor parties and independents on this issue. And it is typically something where parties in opposition or minor parties are more interested in um, engaging with these sorts of issues because uh, it is a bit about holding the government of the day to account. But, of course, both major parties see themselves as as potential future governments, so uh, they haven't always been on board with these sorts of reforms, as we saw with the response to the Lambie Bill in December. You know, it, it will take some strong sort of crossbench and independent pushing on this issue uh, to really get it up in front of Parliament, but it also takes much more importantly, public interest in in knowing about who's influencing politicians and, and political parties, their policies, their decisions. And it's that sort of public interest, which we, which we do see, that helps to build momentum and helps to build uh, pressure on the major parties to take action on this. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's a real opportunity for one or both of them if they want to seize it. It's something that is extremely popular. These sorts of reforms are widely popular. They are also cheap. They are easy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple thing you can do to demonstrate um, a bit of integrity to the Australian population. And what you gain from that could be building public trust. And any current or future government is going to benefit from building public trust. So... I think that there's, you know, big missed opportunity on the table here. I think that's a great point to end on, Kate, this idea that actually implementing these rules would give a great signifier of transparency and building that public trust back up, which has been at an all-time low for quite some time. Just want to thank you both so much for sharing your insight on the complex world of political donations. 
It's an area that's often out of the spotlight, but if you think it deserves greater attention, then by all means, I think do your research, um, listen to podcasts, read the news, and stay aware of this process because it's really important and deserves more attention because fixing this reduces opportunities for influence and corruption in politics. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a rating or review. You can continue the conversation on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Inst. As always, take care and thanks so much for listening. 